Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Mike and Wade are here, continuing our COVID-19 online learning experience for our students at Wisconsin Lutheran College. If you're a regular subscriber, we hope that you uh, this will be beneficial to you. If you want to skip it over, skip it and wait for um, um, a regular episode, that's okay too. Please don't unsubscribe, even though I know it's maybe a bit of a pain that we're giving you all this content every single day. You can adjust your subscription uh, is that the right thing? Subscription to yeah, how you subscribe. How you, what you download. Yeah, you go you into your podcatcher and set up to, to download less. Like so just less or whatever. I will so. say, um, you're going to have a fair amount coming out still through this week. Mm-hmm. But then kind of after this week, it'll be more to the regular episode yeah. winging it feel if we're able to keep up with yeah. that. And we do have a couple episodes in the hopper yet that we just haven't got out because we're doing all this kind of stuff. So We've got at least two coming out through Friday yeah, right now. Two or three. So anyway... Okay, so today we're in uh, Theology 105, which is our intro to Scripture. So basically, um, students that maybe are familiar with the Bible, but maybe didn't go to like a Lutheran or Christian high school. And so we go through the whole Bible in a semester, so it is 100 miles per hour. And they have to do a lot of reading. Proud of those kids for doing all this reading. It is kind of an accomplishment at the end that they've read a really good uh, a chunk of scripture when they're done with this semester. So today um, we're going to talk about First and Second Corinthians. It's going to be really just an overview. They've read them, both uh, those letters. But then for our systematics today, we're going to talk law and gospel and uh, get into the Ten Commandments a little bit. So I haven't been big on, uh, I give them notes. Uh, you students, you know, I, I give you just a couple paragraphs on okay, here's the Galatian congregation, or here is the Ephesian congregation, but I don't do highlight too much of that. I would rather get into the text. But uh, for Corinth, we kind of have to talk just a little bit about the congregation. Um, this is a very uh, cosmopolitan town, so it's in Greece. It is um, very diverse, but it was also known for kind of its debauchery. So uh, the word Corinth became a kind of like Milwaukee, huh? In Milwaukee, more like Vegas on steroids. <laughs> uh, so uh, to fornicate, uh, one way to say to fornicate would be to Corinth somebody, right? So uh, when your town becomes a verb, you know you're known for that, right? And then within the congregation, there would have been all sorts of little house churches, but they would still gather together in bigger house churches for the Sunday service. In fact, St. Paul talks about that, uh, that that's where they came together for the what we would call the full service of meal and, and word. And so weekly, they would come together for Holy Communion. But when they came together, and remember, they're coming back, they're coming out of a quite a debaucherous kind of lifestyle where uh, sex and maybe even a little bit of gluttony was sort of kind of the norm rather than the exception. And uh, what's unique about the Christian church early on, and especially in Corinth, is you have people from not only different uh, ethnic backgrounds, right? We've already talked about just the fact of Jew and everybody else Gentile, but within that, of course, you had people who were Roman citizens, people who were maybe um, slaves from a different part of the Mediterranean world, but you also had different kind of uh, classes that would come together. And uh, at, at some points, Christianity was sort of looked down upon because it was a slave and woman uh, a religion, right? It was for all people, and so there wasn't these class class structures. But at the same time, in especially the Corinth, a Corinthian congregation, you did have rich people, free people, 
Roman citizens, but you also had people who were uh, lower classes, and that meant, for the most part, in, in this situation, slaves, right? Not slaves like American slaves, but people who were tied to a specific estate or family. They may, they may be very well educated. They may, uh, you know, be engineers, or they may be in, in the business world or whatever, but they still didn't have freedom in the sense we have freedom. And so you definitely had kind of different classes, right? And so it was a beautiful thing when um, rich and poor, uh, uh, male and female, Jew and Gentile alike would come as one into the body of Christ. But these people are still sinners, right? And so uh, when they came together in the Corinthian congregation, uh, a wide variety of people at these different house churches would come together for the Sunday service. You still had that kind of class structure that was there. And in one situation, you had... Um, uh, when it came to Holy Communion, and now and, it gets more Milwaukee-ish. Yeah, when you when you had Holy Communion, uh, in the they, early, uh, early church, they started playing "Roll Out the Barrel." Yeah, that's right. And in, uh, in the early linings was flowing. <laughs> in the early church, Holy Communion may be t- tied to a full meal. We may call it a love meal, agape meal. Think the whole Passover meal that we've been talking about, that there was a meal, and then within that meal, there was Christ's body and blood. If you're a, you're a Midwest churchgoer, think potluck, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have the word... Hot dishes and casseroles. Hot dishes and casseroles. So you're down in the church basement for a pseudo-spiritual meal, but it's also had become something like a social event. And people would bring their own food. And so you maybe have one corner, you have people sipping Chardonnay and they got this, uh, you know, salads and steaks and stuff like that. And over in the other corner, you got people drinking Bud Light and, and you know, whatever, like rice or something. They didn't have rice there, but Milwaukee's best light, the beast or whatever like that. And, and to the point where some people were getting drunk. Right. So it was not just, oh, they're being mean and there's clicks. People are like getting drunk, you know, yeah, like going to have to take an Uber. home. Right. And so the the St. Paul comes in and, and this is his his, uh, his trouble congregation that he has set up. And he says, what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. This is something completely ridiculous. And he does talk about how you need to kind of examine yourself. What are you doing here? And uh, when you examine yourself before your Holy Communion, you basically want to answer yourself these questions. Am I a sinner? Check. Yes, I am. Does, is Jesus your salvation? He's the one that saves you and only him. He is. Check. Yes. Do you believe that it's Christ's body and blood that's there? I do. Check. That's how you basically examine yourself. And um, if, if you get to that point and you realize it's actually Christ's body and blood there, heaven and earth have been crashing together and there is, uh, there's something going on here. Perhaps you are thinking about the communion of the whole group and not your cliques. Perhaps you're doing this sacred event without getting, you know, without falling into drunkenness or gluttony. Right. And so I think very quickly the the church service then becomes, it's just about Christ's body and blood. We're not going to have a potluck with it. This is, this is going to be problematic, but this was the Corinthian congregation. So just to give you kind of an overview of, of what St. Paul is talking about. Mike, can I ask you a question? Sure. Is your, are you like rubbing on something? I'm, or is I'm, your I'm moving my feet. Should I stop that? Oh, I'm just picking up like a little in the background. Oh so it's okay. I'm not criticizing you. I was just curious. Um, so when we You're look doing, at. Do you hear that again or no? It's my rubber soles. Yeah, we need to mop this floor then. Uh, first and second Corinthians actually we think is probably four letters. 
there's a lot going on there, and, and this is too much for um, for our our purposes in this over in this uh, brief uh, um, overarching picture of the scripture in, in our 105 theology. Um, but just so you know that there's probably four letters that St. Paul wrote, or at least that's that's what we think. And uh, that's okay that we don't have all four. Um, but there would have been back and forth of St. Paul giving pastoral advice how to deal with some of these problems. And the Holy Communion problem was only one. We won't get into the other ones, but there was other problems that were there. What I'd like to do is concentrate, first of all, on a couple chapters in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 1 chapter one specifically, and maybe uh, chapter two too, and talk about the foolishness of God. So if I, if I would say to you, Wade, the foolishness of God, what, what do you think I mean? What, what, what comes to mind when you think about the foolishness of what is preached? Yeah, that uh, when, it, when it comes to how God chooses to operate and to our salvation, God has this crazy way of... Um, assigning one standing before him and of uh, um, choosing people that is not uh, how we in the world often would. If you think back to uh, um, gym class in grade school and you, you know, you're playing dodgeball back when dodgeball was real dodgeball with the, you know, the balls that kind of make the boing noise when they hit you in the head and, uh, you're probably going to pick the kid who's really fast and has just a cannon of an arm, right? Um, but God picks the, the kid who can't throw um, and is pretty much terrified of getting hit by the ball. Uh, or um, as far as how he chooses to develop standing before him, uh, well, before I came over here, my wife has to work from home, and she's a supervisor at her work, and so she had to do a job interview over Zoom. And... Uh, you know, so I we were all staying out of her hair so she could do this this interview, but I'm guessing the goal of her interview was to get the the most qualified candidate. And how do you get that? Who has the best resume? Who's done the most work? Right? Who's the most impressive? And God, rather than operating in that way, operates entirely by grace. Um, he doesn't uh, ask for a resume. In fact, he says. If you want your standing before me based on works, you're going to end up uh, worse off than if you come just to receive it entirely by grace. So I think the foolishness of God uh, applies to, to both those things, and both these things were alien to uh, the Greek philosophical and religious thought that was, for as much as Corinth was, uh, you know, they're, they're fornicating, mm -hmm. but there, it was also a, a very, um, uh, there was a very, developed philosophical and religious life there uh, and keep in mind too like you know you, we might talk about people corinthine we should use that in the handbook at school by the way <laughs> no corinthine um but the corinthine wasn't necessarily as uh um unamenable to philosophical and religious life in greek thought as it is in christianity or in judaism and in fact, Temp temple prostitutes. Right, this was sometimes part of the religious life, so we do well to keep that in mind too. Uh, that uh, that that doesn't mean that these people were irreligious or weren't thinking philosophically. And so the gospel, um, you've talked about in a previous session already, Mike. You know me so well um, that uh, in a previous session that you know Paul when he's talking to 
um, those immersed in Greek thought at Areopagus, Areopagus, and he brings up the resurrection. They're like, well, why would you want to be back in the body, right? Um, this is, it's foolishness um, at precisely some of the points that were linchpins for Greek philosophy or, or religious thought. Um, and then for the Jews, obviously it can be a stumbling block, but I, that's a long answer. I don't know if I addressed no, it. Good. So when St. <clears throat> Paul's talking about, you know, the, the quote unquote foolishness of God, and he doesn't say it that way, but it's to <clears throat> us looks foolish, a man dying on a cross that doesn't, that's not glory. That's, that's a curse. When the unbeliever sometimes in the broader culture mocks Christianity, um, it's, he's not wrong necessarily nope. that, uh, that it's mockable. I don't mean that we ought to mock it, but I mean... It's backwards to, to Yeah, to how human religion tends to work in human thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, there are things that just seem... Your super strong, all-powerful God got nailed to the tree of the cross, couldn't even get a bunch of people in backwards Israel to follow him. And you call and you're this saying glory. he's God of all nations, right? This is, it does seem backwards. Right. And and you're right, not just to common sense, but also to the philosophy of the day, a, a <coughs> physical God, a God that promises something physical when the idea was to get away from the physical. Just to mention. You mean Jeffrey Dahmer could have gone to heaven yeah. and not Mahatma Gandhi? Sure, sure. Um, the idea, too, of the temple prostitutes, that seems so weird to us. But think about, it, you know, there would be an idea of God providing sort of, you know, Mother Earth maybe yep. even. And so the the seasons of seed and planting and harvesting, you know, there's a sexual component to that. And so that, that sort of And we see this sense. in the ancient Near East with Asherah and mm -hmm. other things already in the Old Testament. Um Fertility with crops also is often tied to sexual fertility. And keep in mind, too, most of the inheritance laws and royal lines and things like this, it depended upon being able to have heirs. So. Yeah. So it, it's not too odd to do that. But you got to imagine this this person is going, if they're going to become Christian out of this, this is a lifestyle change, right? right? And it's a philosophical change. It's a common sense change. And so he, he depicts this idea of, of what we think is the foolishness of God, but that is still wiser than man's wisdom because all of these philosophies. So Paul kind of even almost mocks that. Where's the philosopher of this age? What have you done, right? Um, and and here is this Christianity that's something completely yeah. different. And in fact, he zeroes in on the cross and he calls it foolishness to Greeks. So think wise Gentiles that have been thinking about these things who are the, the, the heirs of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and, and all the rest. And then that cross, but is a stumbling block to Jews. And, and the word there is where we get the word scandal. And so it's rightfully to talk about not just the cross is something that, oh, that seems backwards. It's scandalous. Right. It is scandalizing thing. And, and so, it still is to, um, to many religious people, people who've been sometimes in Lutheran pews their whole life when they really see a gospel moment um, can be offended at a certain person being forgiving or the church being gracious it can it can sit poorly with us sometimes even for pastors i mean um i i had times in my ministry where the the gospel sometimes almost seemed a little too much yeah. right and i don't say that proudly no. but yeah so it, if if you're not looking at the cross as a scandal you probably haven't thought about it in, in depth so 
as St. Paul goes forward with this, this, this message of a scandal, this, this thing that seems foolishness to us, he quickly gets into the idea of like, you can't by your own thinking and choosing to borrow words from Martin Luther, come to this conclusion, right? This has to be by faith. And I, I really like uh, 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where St. Paul uses this analogy of how you need the spirit to have faith. Mm -hmm. Like you would not have come up with this on your own and you can't And you wouldn't have come to accept it or understand it. Absolutely absolutely not. And so he he uses kind of a simple uh, explanation that, and and it assumes that somebody has a soul. So he says, okay, if you're going to really know somebody, you can know somebody from the outward appearance but you really need to know their spirit or their soul. So uh, this is the analogy I, I look, I, I use. So we're in a room, uh, l- l- classroom situation, and some guy comes in, 6'3", 320, muscle. He's got... Brown hair or blonde hair? He's got, uh, doesn't matter, shaved. In fact, he's shaved. He's bald. Shaved his head like me? Yep. And then he's got... Beard? He's got... Kind of like a... Not, a, beard? not a beard yet, he, but he's got pipes like you. Nice. And um, he he's, he's got like this, he's got this barbed wire tattoo on his thing underneath that says oh, cliche. Oh, cool. yeah. <laughs> no. And uh, and he's got a shirt that says Wisconsin Badgers. And you're like... Kind of sleeveless shirt. Yeah. And I'm like, that guy plays defensive tackle for the Wisconsin Badgers, right? For my outward appearance, I have pegged him. Now, he comes in and then he's going to do a presentation on how he likes to read poetry, loves his grandma, and loves to cook. Oh man. By the words, now this is important. By words, I get to know his inner self, his soul and his spirit. So I have to have the spirit, his spirit that comes through words to really understand who he is in the same way. It'd be a really good movie too, like about the defensive tackle. And he's, you know, like he's coming to get to know himself. He really discovers himself in poetry in class. Mm -hmm. And then, so like he gets to like, he, he pancakes somebody but then he like quotes a nice poetry line yeah. and he, you know, coming into his full being. Yeah, it would be, it would be a very, maybe falls in love. Could be an artsy movie. Yeah. Could be an artsy movie. With a, I would say falls in love with a, like a girl who plays the cello, mm-hmm. but also is kind of emo. <laughs> Okay, we're gonna this is we're gonna save the jokes for, for I'm a, not joking. For a, yeah, for a lesson where we don't have to go through. She so kind of has her one of those haircuts where her head's kind of shaved on the side, and then the long hair. Yeah. Um, like, does she have tattoos hair. too? I'm gonna say no tattoos, but okay. they're gonna get tattoos together. Yeah, that, um, that would be like a moment like in the movie. Maybe like something from Shakespeare. Like uh, that would be a moment in the movie. Right, where, a real like, bonding moment. But then yeah. they kind of break up because his football buddies kind of get on him. Yeah. That he's getting soft, and then he and so he pulls back. And how about he is actually could be drafted in the NFL, right? But then and the, decides and the Badgers not to, they have a winning season. He decides not to. Yeah, get they drafted. win the Big Ten. The national championship game is coming up, and he realizes more than the national championship. He wants her. Mm-hmm. They kind of reconcile. Um, she flies out to surprise him, and uh, she's made a song on the cello to her his favorite poem. And then he wins the national championship, but with with her there. Yeah. I, I think we could tweak it a little bit, I mean, during the process and of his writing buddies, and producing. his buddies all come along and they've memorized the poem as a sign of, like, their friendship. That they've they were come sorry around. for ragging on they've him. They've come yeah. around, yeah. And the one buddy's kind of 
tearing up a little bit. Would you make this a musical or would it no, be? No, a musical would be going too yeah, far. Too Quite far. frankly, in my view, I think it would be overkill. Yeah, and I think with musicals, you don't get a whole lot of character development. Right. It's, it's got to have more words. Yeah. So the point is that St. Paul's making here is that <laughs> in order, I can, look at, I can look at God outwardly like natural law. Right. Um, and I can maybe even look at scripture and it tells me something about God. But it's through, I need to know God's spirit as in the spirit comes to me through words for me to, to truly understand God and truly trust him. Now, that analogy limps, limps a little bit, but I think coming off the idea of the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and that you need to have the spirit, I think is pretty powerful, power, powerful um, example there. All right. So going further... <laughs> Um, I'm behaving. You can tell I want to keep going with this plot, right? <laughs> I have a lot of more elements, but I'm not going to do it. Um, we will wait for your. We'll wait for your. Um, if anybody out there knows how to punch up a script, feel free yeah, to get in contact we'll, with me we'll, separately. For your we'll, manuscript, we'll wait for that. Yeah. All right, just a couple other things in First Corinthians. We already talked about First Corinthians 15 when it came to um, resurrection apologetics, and we're not going to go that. But maybe uh, Lord's Supper and fellowship. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about that, and and maybe tie it in with eating um, eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. I mean, that's another issue in First and Second Corinthians. Yeah, and you know what else I'm thinking? Poetry in motion, how about that for a name of it? Well, think about it. I wonder if there's something else there. Yeah, I would sure. like something that relates to like what a defensive tackle does. Right. And he doesn't have to be a defensive tackle. He could be a linebacker. If he could, well, I think if he could be an offensive lineman, it'd be yeah. easier for a title. Yeah, but that's not necessary. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. Corinthians, Lord's Supper. What specifically about it, Mike? Well, maybe let's start with this. Let's start with uh, food sacrifice to idols. Okay. And then and then go into holy communion. Yeah, I think this the food sacrifice to idols is kind of a fascinating <clears throat> thing to consider because it it shows how doctrine and practice can kind of meet. And it's really one of the first instances we see in the early church of people having to figure out how to balance Christian freedom and Christian love um, in what we might later call uh, adiaphora or an adiaphoron. So define that as something neither commanded nor forbidden by the Bible. Right. Um, but it can become a thing that becomes good or bad based on how it's used. Uh, but this, uh, we are given Christian freedom um, but we're also called to Christian love. And so you have this issue where basically uh, the butcher shops in Corinth, anything you're going to get from the butcher shop has already been sacrificed in the temple. And so in essence, you're eating meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. You have some Corinthians who say, look, I'm not going to become a vegetarian. I I like meat. I'm not worshiping in the temple. I want to I wanna have my... Uh, Oh, what do they want to grill, Mike? Uh, pork chops, or mm -hmm. um, and uh, you have other people who say that that is associated with idolatry. I don't think I can eat that. And so we might expect what many religions would do is just come up with a dietary law. Then in this situation, right? Um, but you'll notice Christianity is one of the few religions that doesn't have dietary laws. Um, you know, Hinduism has different views depending on who you're what teaching you're following in Hinduism, but a lot of Hindu is, Hindus are, are not going to eat meat or at least certain meats. Um, Islam has halal. Uh, Judaism has kosher. And then Christianity has eat what you want, right? But avoid that if it uh, 
if it might cause offense. And so Paul's going to say, if your conscience bothers you, don't eat the meat. But if it doesn't bother you, go ahead. Now, if you come together, right, if, if I'm not eating meat, hypothetically, and Mike is, and Mike has me over, then maybe Mike doesn't serve meat that day that's been sacrificed to idols. And this will be uh, kind of, it's a good example for how Christianity is going to have to navigate things in different cultures and societies throughout the ages. Uh, every culture or society is going to have its taboos or its, um, for instance, a, a Christian uh, in a heavily uh, Muslim or, or Hindu country might not eat foods that are going to offend their, number, their neighbors who are still in those religions for the sake of the gospel if that creates an obstacle to evangelism. Um, but there may come a time where if your neighbor is insisting that it's a sin to eat that meat, that you actually have to eat it to protect your Christian freedom. And so this balance, in some ways it would be easier if, if Paul had just laid down laws, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Don't do this. The law seems easier. But this will be the balance for the Christian life in general. So um, one, of my, one of my best friends is a, a Baptist pastor, um, so he doesn't drink. So if we're going out, and let's say we go to Applebee's because it's a fine establishment, right? I, I might not get a beer because I know um, he doesn't drink. Now, if he were to say to me, wait, it's a sin to have a beer. You're going to hell if you have that beer. Then I'm going to have one for him in his honor and one for me. Yeah. Um, not get drunk, right? But uh, but that will be a distinction that will, will be made. Um, and that balance, this is the same. It shows itself in worship. Um, you know, how do you strike that balance of Christian faith and love and what takes place on a Sunday? Every culture is going to have different things that will... What what do you wear to worship, um, right? The clothing a certain culture or society has. Uh, we want to balance Christian faith and Christian love. I probably shouldn't dress like I'm going to the beach. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but all this without making laws where God hasn't made them. And I think that's the, the thing that sets Christianity apart. This idea of freedom, yeah. And maybe one example just to kind of give it into people's life. Uncle Frank's an alcoholic. So you're... Just because he's an alcoholic doesn't mean that you you're making can't, me want to write another movie. Right and now. This means that you can't you can't drink alcohol uh, at a legal age in moderation. But if Uncle Frank comes over for Thanksgiving, you're not going to serve wine out of love for him, unless you want the party to get unless, real unless you love for him, right? So that that's one way to think about it. We'll get more into this in Galatians, so I think we should move on a little bit. But now let's connect it to... Frank's had a rough life. Yeah, well... You, he had a bad childhood. You're appreciative of that, and then he lost his job at the factory. Right. You know, and it was very easy Then he to, relapsed. He had been yeah. doing good. Right. And had a family, had been sober for years, relapsed. It all falls apart. Yeah. He's invited, though, to Christmas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this Christmas is going to be what really gets him back on the wagon. Mm -hmm. But there's some relatives who don't understand balancing Christian freedom and love, and they're, they're really trying to, to tempt Frank. Mm -hmm. But just so happens, a friend of the family who's been invited to the party also has struggled with alcoholism. Mm -hmm. And they end up out back, and they're drinking their coffee. Or does eggnog have alcohol in it? Mm -hmm. They're drinking non-alcoholic eggnog. Mm -hmm. Maybe smoking a cigar. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have a heart to heart. Mm -hmm. This gets through to Frank, and uh, Frank goes out and he buys presents for everybody in the family. And then the family realizes they haven't bought a present 
for Frank. And Frank says, you're my presence. Yeah. And from that moment, he uh, his family life begins to improve. And he realizes that life is a gift that the world's been given back to him. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then there's like a Goo Goo Dow song. Why won't you stop? That's very good. Let's connect this. Frank's driving in his car. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's connect this idea of food sacrifice to idols and Holy Communion. So if I'm going to, if I'm going to misuse this meal, Holy Communion, right? I'm, I'm getting drunk at this meal. I, I'm not inviting the people from a different social economic uh, class into my little group over here at the potluck where with this agape meal, um, you know, how, how do I deal with that? What's the connection there? Like, um, am I misusing, am I misusing this meal too? I mean, well, what's, how should I navigate all of this? Oh, you're asking. I am asking you. The, uh, well, I think the, and this is not, you look historically, this is not the only time stuff like this has come up. You know, it's interesting. Go to, if you go to Boston or something, you'll see they had, um, pews that are kind of like boxed off and where you sat kind of was based on your economic or mm -hmm. social standing in the area you paid for your pews yeah this is something that's come up throughout church history um and i think uh this gets to another marvelous thing about christianity um many religions have castes or they have um this kind of clean unclean dynamic that determines one's standing even the old testament in the synagogue had set places where you would stand or sit um, as well as the temple. And what happens when Jesus comes is you have this new thing where slave, woman, child, free, um, rich, poor are all together. In fact, your pastor might be a poor slave um, and you are a wealthy landowner. And that dynamic is very unsettling for people. We like to have things Stratif we like to know where we stand. Sometimes even if we're of lesser status, we at least like knowing where we stand, right? It gives some certainty to life. Um, you have an orbit to operate within. Um, but it's very hard for Christianity to manage this. Even within the church, there's always the temptation to create a spiritual caste um, and things of that, that sort. And, uh, and so I think um, we do well to remember that the church itself, but especially communion, is not to emphasize our different standings um, or our divisions. That is an expression of unity. Uh, and so it's it's actually the kind of uh, manifestation of the gospel that I may be kneeling next to someone who is uh, completely different than me economically, socially, ethnically. Uh, and, uh, and that ought to be the case, right? And so it's a sacred meal, and so... Paul is sort of saying too, like, uh, you know, how could you, how could you have this sacred meal, but then continue to like go to the temple for instance, where, right. where, and I think where you had this, this social economics, uh, you know, status yep. thing going on, how could you bring that kind of stuff into this sacred meal? I mean, what, and, what and does... religion historically in many places, uh, serves a social function of, reinforcing societal stratifications or reinforcing power structures. Um, Christianity has been used in that way in the past, and it's very sad that it has. 
Um, but just as it was unsettling to, to not have dietary laws, so it could be unsettling for people who were used to pagan worship that in many ways, and keep in mind, Greek and Roman religion, they were civil religions, right? Mm-hmm. These were um, expressions of citizenship and reinforcements of what it meant to be citizen. Um, it, it probably was unsettling for them to have that aspect removed. So at the same time, we're free to, okay, listen, this, this thing that was sacrificed at the temple now is being sold in the marketplace. It's not like it's got cooties. You are free to eat that. But if I'm going to go to this pagan worship thing, but also eat at God's table, I'm doing two diametrically opposed things. Or if I try to bring in this pagan thing with the different statuses into the, into the Christian life, I've met, I've mixed something up that. And so there are some lines there. Well, let's maybe uh, get a little bit further in that and just talk about Holy Communion Fellowship at, in general, this is a communion, a vertical communion with God, and then a horizontal communion with with the church. And so, when every time you break that up, that that's a problem. And and quite frankly, Saint Paul is when the way he talks, he assumes that this is actually Christ's body and blood, right? Um, and so that this actually is something he going just on here. Assume it; he confesses, right? It, yeah. And so, when if you really are going to understand this fellowship meal as as St. Paul does in, in Corinth, I think you got to come to the conclusion that St. Paul certainly believes and confesses that this is actually Christ's body and blood. Um, and he goes so far as to say, when you get Jesus in, and you are doing this without faith, you are drinking condemnation upon yourself. And so we want to be very careful who we get, uh, who we give uh, Holy Communion to, and I, I'm not always pleased with this analogy, but you should think of Jesus as penicillin, right? I Je- use that too. Jesus is like the wonder drug that solves all these things, unless you are allergic to penicillin. And so as a pastor, I want to make sure when you come, do you truly believe these things, that you're sinful, Jesus is your only salvation, and this is Christ's body and blood here? Because if you're coming without that understanding, that examination, Jesus becomes you're allergic to it. Jesus becomes the judge to you, the condemner, not the savior. So Jesus himself says, you know, I'm the one that judges, right? right? And there might be someone who is a Christian, um, but does not come from a tradition that recognizes Christ's body and blood in the sacrament. In that situation, uh, us saying you shouldn't commune with us at this time is not us saying you're not going to heaven. This is us saying this will be bad for your faith to do this. Um, because in not eating and drinking with recognition of the body and blood of Christ, you're doing sort of your condemnation. So this is us trying to do keep someone from doing harm to their mm-hmm. faith. We don't teach that uh, the communion is baptism, right? Someone can have, um, we don't say that the churches that, that deny the real presence, that they all go to hell. Mm-hmm. Um, but we obviously, in a church that confesses this as the body and blood of Christ, um, don't want to do harm to those people's mm-hmm. faith either. So I, as a doctor, a physician of souls, want to know where you're at, right? And so that's why we, we guard the table in that way. And we've talked about table fellowship before in, the, in, this, in this class. So don't freak out. Everybody's got a, everybody has a line where they say, you know what, this is, you, need to, you need to confess this before you're a part of this group, religious or not. So don't freak out about churches saying no or yes to people. And to keep in mind that the, the, 
the supper, faith in it, the confession of the supper that we have, removes the distinctions among those who are communing, right? They are one in Christ. But that same confession creates distinctions um, that need to be observed when we decide who is communing or not communing. So um, it's a unity in a confession of the faith. We're doing this in remembrance of Jesus. Well, how do you do this in remembrance of Jesus? You have to know who Jesus is, what he has done. We do this recognizing his body and blood. Um, so the same confession that removes distinctions for those who are communing in faith and, and, and trust in what they're receiving um, creates necessary distinctions that need to be observed too. Um, not in a way of um, that distinction is not this person is a good person, this person is a bad person. That's not at all. No one is worthy of, of Christ's grace or mercy, um, but rather a distinction of where that person um, stands with regard to specifically that confession of the sacrament. So you should think about Jesus as he is both the one who sends to hell and the one who takes to heaven. He confesses that very clearly. So the difference, of course, is faith, not ethnicity, not social status, not if you're a good person or not a good person. And so if you believe this Jesus is penicillin to you, if you do not believe and you reject him, Jesus is the condemner to you. You're allergic to penicillin. And so that, I think that's a helpful way to think, thinking about it. All right, I want to switch gears in our final minutes here and just uh, talk systematically about law and gospel. We've already been through a lot of this in our class, and so this will be review. I'm going to define the law as the will of God. The gospel is the good news of salvation. But the next step is to ask, what does the law do? Very simply, the law shows me my sin. The gospel shows me my savior. We may take a third distinction and say, what does the law say? The law says, do this, and it is never done. The gospel says, believe this, and it is already done for you. So we have the two systems of a righteousness by law or a righteousness by faith. Um, but with that, we have three types of the law. Uh, you can have moral, civic, or ceremonial law. So the moral law, think Ten Commandments, is always wrong to punch somebody in the face for no reason. The civic law is something that's not necessarily morally wrong uh, in itself. So there's no moral thing that says you have to stop at a red octagon sign. But in our civic society, that's helpful, right? And then ceremonial laws, which have already been over a bunch of times, is like, for instance, dietary restrictions that were served as a theological teaching or, or a, a purpose to keep a hedge around Israel, those for a specific time and a specific place. Those are fulfilled by Jesus who comes and, and, and we don't need that law anymore to separate Israel. He also may fulfill it typologically. He's, this is a picture of a sacrifice, for example, is a picture of him once he has that sacrifice completed. We don't need to make those sacrifices anymore. He then comes to fulfill the moral law in a different way where he was perfect in our place and then his righteousness becomes our righteousness and replaces our unrighteousness. I do like to think about the three uses of the law too. Uh, the first use, I, I like to call it the mere use. Um, so I look at myself and I see sin. So the law shows me my sin. And I'm not talking about some mere late night club. We all look good. I'm talking about early at six in the morning 
in your bathroom at home that has all the big light bulbs around it and you see every blemish. That's what the law does. A curb use, it may think, uh, think of it uh, keeping us in line, keeping us from anarchy in the world. And then the guide use, um, which would, yeah, it does give us advice on what to do. But remember that as righteous people, we are slaves to this righteousness. And this is actually uh, paradoxically freedom. Um, I, I know as a Christian man, be nice to your wife, right? So the law is always going to accuse me when I'm not nice to my wife and then I'm driven to the gospel. Does it give me an advice? Sure. But it's much more about me uh, being shown that I'm a sinful person, going to God in repentance, being made righteous again, this death and resurrection thing and baptism, confession, absolution. And then I naturally do what I really already know what I'm supposed to do. And, and that's be nice to my, to my wife. Uh, we already been through the 10 commandments, even though I have them on your, on your sheets there, I think page 31 to 32, just, uh, just a reminder that the 10 commandments, just a few things. First of all, uh, anytime you break any commandment, you're also breaking the first. So if you, uh, covet something and maybe even steal something, what you're saying to God is you didn't give me enough to survive on, or you didn't give me enough to make me have a happy full life. You're not being a very good God. I need to play God. And so you trust yourself rather than trust God. And you're breaking the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods. The second thing to remember about the commandments is that God's not trying to be a stick in the mud here. He's trying to protect the gift. So he says, um, a good name is a, is a, is a, is a gift for everybody. So don't gossip, eighth commandment, uh, you know, don't give false testimony, don't lie. Uh, so to protect your name and other people's names too. Um, he wants you to have a healthy, good sex life so that you don't, you don't, you don't perform these with guilt, right? So, Hey, follow these rules so that it is good for you and not bad for you. Um, and uh, I do remind you of sin of commission and sin of omission. So a sin of commission is when you commit something. So I, uh, perhaps I, um, you know, the, the classic example that I use is I'm walking down the street and uh, I litter on my neighbor's yard. I've committed a sin. But God also demands the opposite. Uh, and so if I walk down my neighbor's yard and I see somebody else has littered on their yard and I don't pick it up for him, I've omitted love. I've omitted something. And so you start to go, oh, there's no way to keep this law perfectly. Yeah, that's the point. And you need to look to Jesus who kept that law perfectly for you. I'm going to, I'm going to give you the last two minutes here. What is the danger of mixing the law, the will of God that that shows us our sin and says, do this and is never done. What's the danger of mixing the law with the gospel, which is the good news of salvation, which shows us our Savior, which says, believe this, and it's already done. Yeah, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, I think if we're going to use a physician analogy again, it would be like the physician who uh, confuses diagnosis with treatment um, and vice versa. The, the law is a diagnosis. The law looks at us and it says this is what's wrong. Um, but you don't treat a sickness with diagnosis. You don't stop when you say, okay, here's what you, uh, you know, you've, your appendix is rupturing. No one goes, okay, well, that's good to know. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Um, the gospel is the, the treatment. Uh, when we, when we mix law and gospel, when we confuse law and gospel, 
we inevitably uh, lead people back to a standing before God that is rooted in themselves and is therefore insufficient. Um, When we have the gospel but not the law, we basically become an affirming people. Um, And we say, you're you're good just the way you are, which is to leave someone in in their own works and their standing before God. And Uh, probably guilt and and a burdened conscience if they're honest. Right. Uh, When we have only the law uh, and not the gospel, well, then we leave people with a constant striving for righteousness um, that they cannot attain. So we're in a Romans 10 situation. So um, throughout our lives, we, we need to be both diagnosed um, and, and daily, continually, because we daily sin. But then we also need the treatment, right? Sin is not a illness that we don't have a treatment for. Uh, the crucifix is the treatment for it. And so we preach Christ crucified um, and write the famous chronic painting with the blood flowing from his side into the chalice. We we commune, we baptize. Uh, so th- there, the church is always tempted to fall into one of the two ditches, um, an overemphasis on the law, and we see that in medieval Christianity. But I think in the 20th century, we've seen a development of this uh, overemphasis on the, the gospel, which really ceases to be a gospel, right? The gospel forgives real sins. And when you no longer have real sins, you no longer have a real gospel. <coughs> so that in, in many places, um, the church has just become a, a self-esteem center, an affirmation center. Uh, and, you know, the the goal of the church becomes to affirm as many people as possible in as, in as many ways as possible. Uh, and, and, and that's basically... Um, like telling the person whose appendix is rupturing, uh, they're great and let's celebrate you. Um, but in the meanwhile, that appendix is not being treated. So I, I think uh, to strike the balance is difficult. Luther says anyone who can do it deserves a doctor's hat. Uh, but it's, uh, and, and you know this in your own life, if you've gone through a particularly indulgent phase, you know, where you th- said, this is me and I'm I'm being me, you know that deep down you don't really buy that. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the more vigorously you have to insist that whatever is you and you are good, the more your conscience is actually probably at work. Um, but then we can get to the uh, kind of remedial phase where we say, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna change. I am going to fix myself. And deep down, you know that's not gonna work long term either. It's a law either. solution to yeah. a law problem. Yeah, you'll keep it up for a while, but. I'm going to work out every day. And maybe you will for a few months or a year. Um, but even then, no matter how nicely you get your body to look, you're still going to find faults with it. You just, you know, it's the case. So I get saved by the gospel, not by the law, right? And so we don't want to mix that up. The law's purpose is to show us our sin. Yes, to guide us. Yes, it is what we do after we are saved. Um, but the gospel free and clear is what saves us and we don't want to mix the two all right thanks for coming on uh let's keep uh plugging along students we're almost at the end um until then we meet again let the bird fly